The fair girl went on her knees and bent over me, fairly gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness which was both thrilling and repulsive, and as she arched her neck, she actually licked her lips like an animal, till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white sharp teeth. Ah, she wants to suck his... Blood. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog, where we're discussing Dracula by Bram Stoker. <laughs> My name is Jonas Hawk. There's nothing scarier than that that I could come up with. I, I was expecting some sort of Halloween-related joke, but since you don't have one, I'm just Christian Schneider. Hi. Or, of course, Dr. Gothic, as your friends sometimes call you, because, uh, Christian, in your PhD, you actually specialized on the Gothic, on the eerie, on the scary, didn't you? I did, and that is why I was actually very much looking forward to this particular novel. I had waited for a long time to um, suggest Dracula as a novel to read, and finally it's going to happen. So let's hope that my expectations are met by what we have to say about the novel. Dracula starts off with Jonathan Harker, a young Englishman who travels to Transylvania to meet up with the mysterious Count Dracula in order to discuss the latter's move to Britain. As Harker finds out relatively quickly, Dracula is actually a vampire and he wants to come to Britain to find new victims. Harker's fiancée, Mina, and her friend Lucy are unaware of the danger that awaits them. And actually, Lucy is much more preoccupied with the three men who are vying to win her hand in marriage. Soon enough, a ghost ship arrives at Whitby, where Mina and Lucy live, and strange things begin to happen. Lucy becomes weaker and weaker, and one of her suitors, John Seward, knows no other way than to call upon his old mentor, Abraham Van Helsing from Amsterdam, to help him find out what is the problem. And it will be no surprise that the problem is Dracula. Lucy, unfortunately, doesn't survive the encounter with the vampire and is turned herself into an undead. But Mina, her suitors, and Jonathan Harker come together with Dr. Van Helsing to fight Dracula and to get rid of this unholy, undead creature that threatens their Victorian idol. Bram Stoker was born on the 8th of November, 1847, so his birthday is coming up. Isn't that nice? Um, in the north side of Dublin. Um, and I, I don't know if I've mentioned it, but that's where I live now, so I can actually tell you he, he was born in what's nowadays the rough part of town. He went to, oh, look at that, Trinity College Dublin, where I'm going now. <sighs> and we get it. He was a member of uh, the Historical Society, or HIST, and the Philosophical Society, or PHIL. And guess who else is a member of both of those societies? Anyway, 
he did not stay in Dublin very long. He worked as a taxman. He found his calling not really by being an artist at first, but rather by managing artists. He was a theater manager. And it was only uh, in the 1890s, 1897 specifically, that he published Dracula, became a full-time writer. The novel was very successful. It was already popular on stage during his lifetime. And when the motion pictures came about, it was also one of the first books to be turned into not just one, but several films throughout the decades. So Christian, you wanted to discuss Dracula, and you wanted to discuss the novel that has become a legend, really. So maybe it would make sense to go back to the novel itself and really look at something that is distinctive to the novel, the style. The novel is written in a very interesting way, isn't it? It is. And many readers who don't know about that are kind of surprised when they first encounter the book. The novel is an epistolary novel. It is composed of letters, of diary entries, of newspaper articles. So it's kind of pieced together from different perspectives. And I think on the one hand, that is surprising because you expect this horror story not to be so documentary, not to be so much about collecting evidence for what is going on. On the other hand, that is actually something that's typical for Gothic fiction. Gothic fiction often has this trope of the manuscript or of these different fragments working together. And the effect sometimes is exactly this notion that this actually happened and we can tell you and there's evidence. But on the other hand, I think it also adds that you can never be entirely sure. If you have different perspectives, then there is never one coherent perspective that really tells you what's going on. And for me, at least, when I first read this, I found this to be very successful in the beginning. The diary entries of Jonathan Harker, for example, where he describes what is going on in Castle Dracula and how scary that is. And then suddenly it's over and we come to an entirely new setting and we don't know what happened to him. I think that works really well to even nowadays get you in a state of suspense, working with this unseen and sometimes unexplainable horror, at least in the beginning of the novel. It is definitely very effective. Uh and I think you can tell that Bram Stoker was involved in the theatre because it is a very theatrical novel, for lack of a better term. I remember reading an abridged and illustrated version of this when I was a child and that sent shivers down my spine. And then when I came to these same scenes that I remember from the illustrations rereading it this time, I still sort of looked over my shoulder and was a bit freaked out. But you've, you've sort of laid out the reason why a lot of Gothic fiction uses the diary or the found manuscript form. Basically the same reason why uh, Paranormal Activity is a, a found footage movie. It lends credibility, it lends authenticity of some sort. That is all very interesting, but I think Dracula doesn't do it very well. Dracula has certain scenes, but overall, the style of the book is just grating. For example, lots of different people write these diaries. So Mina, Lucy, Jonathan Harker, as you said, all the other suitors of Lucy, with the exception of Quincy. Because he's American, yeah, he doesn't write. Yeah, he probably can't even read or write. Uh, more on the characterization of Quincy later. <laughs> but basically, they all write exactly the same. Even, for example, Dr. Seward, who keeps his diary on phonograph cylinders, doesn't deliver the story to us in any other way. It, there's never any direct speech caught on those cylinders, even if somebody runs into the room and calls on him to, uh, to come to an emergency, you know? They never make any use of the alleged medium. And that is just a shame. 
I, I agree. The style in general feels very wooden at times. The dialogues these people apparently exchange feel extremely stilted. Maybe theatrical. Uh, and all those, all those stilted dialogues, of course, they can all re remember with perfect recollection days afterwards sometimes when they write them down. And there is certainly still, I find it very interesting. You mentioned that Dr. Seward uses these phonogra uh, phonograph entries. So there is something that's new to the novel. Stoker acknowledges that this is taking place in Victorian times, in contemporary times for him. So there is some notion that this is a modern world. But at the same time, of course, Dracula and the castle and the religious aspect, these are all going back to the past. So the style might also try to pay homage to these kind of typical tropes of the Gothic novel and doesn't really succeed in portraying this modern world in that much detail. I think also another problem of the book is that it is fairly episodic. It is it is a, a novel of parts, essentially. The first part, I would say, is the diary of Jonathan Harker, where he comes to the castle and then he's trapped in the castle and tries to escape. And that is the part that a lot of people know and uh, remember. I think that is the most effective part as well that has all the interesting things with Dracula climbing down the castle wall or the three seductive uh, vampire vi women trying to uh, seduce Jonathan Harker and kill him. But that then ends and just sort of goes away. Then we have the second part where Dracula comes to England and he feasts on Lucy and that then ends when she is turned into a vampire and then they destroy her as a vampire. Okay. And then the third part, uh, Dracula does some more stuff and they fight him and then they actually leave England again. And then there's this whole crazy journey on the Orient Express and on ships and on horseback. And it just but it is not really described. It's just mentioned that it's happening. Yeah, it's, it's, it comes just, rather sudden. It just peters out, basically. It's uh, he, he set up a really interesting situation and then he thought, and what to do with that now? Uh, I don't know. And that's so frustrating. It's all good setup, and then then it just goes away. And uh, it's really anticlimactic. Ironically, for for a man who should have known how to stage a showdown. You're right. I also think that the beginning, which draws you in into this mysterious and darkly threatening world of the vampire is very effective. And I think to a, a large part, that is also due to the character of Dracula, the eponymous vampire who is also the big bad of the whole thing. I think it's very interesting to look at him because on the one hand, he is typical of the Gothic novel. In the Gothic novel, you have the Gothic villain who is hunting young innocent women who preys on them sexually, but also violently, who is often a noble man. So you can see the kind of bourgeois sources of the Gothic novel. And Dracula is all of these things. He's very proud, for example, of his nobility. When he talks to Jonathan Harker, he mentions again and again blood, not in a vampiric sense, but in the sense of his ancestry, how he represents what is best about Eastern Europe, the nobility of his blood, and so on. And that makes him, in the beginning at least, a really fascinating character because he talks about his goals very indirectly and he doesn't have to be a vampire to see, okay, here we have a formidable enemy with his own motivations. But at the same time, as you mentioned, even that seems to kind of peter out or go away. Van Helsing even describes this seemingly 
noble and fascinating character as basically a kind of remnant of a previous evolutionary state that his brain is like the brain of a child, that he's nothing more than a kind of a, an animal, more or less. And that is, again, maybe fascinating, but also frustrating to a certain degree that this interesting character is suddenly turned into nothing more than a, an animal-like monster. As ever, the, the villains are the more interesting, the more fascinating ones. Just just look around you this Halloween and see how many Dracula-like vampires you see and how many people will you see dressed up as Jonathan Harker, you know? Who is the most milquetoast of oh. the characters you so could imagine. The only thing that characterizes Jonathan Harker is basically he dreams of being a partner in an accountancy firm, a safe and secure office job. And he talks a lot about how much he loves his fiancée, how brilliant that is oh he's just he's just I mean there's a reason that in the Francis Ford Coppola film he's played by Keanu Reeves whereas Dracula yes. is Gary Oldman <laughs> That, that, that is true. That's all you need to know about these two characters, basically. Although, to a certain degree, and that brings me to kind of my pet theory about Dracula, to a certain degree, you get the feeling that maybe that is supposed to be that way. For example, in that scene we read in the beginning where he's, Jonathan Harker is seduced by these vampire brides, there is a lot of talk of how passive he is, and there's a lot of mentioning of his eyelashes. So he is described in a way that might rather be reminiscent of a woman that is seduced by the evil machinations of some gothic villain. And many of the male characters in the novel are described as being very emotional, they cry a lot, they have nervous breakdowns, and that is interesting because the Victorian image of the gentleman was a much more rugged and manly one. And it's not quite clear whether Stoker is criticizing that or whether he unwittingly paints a picture of men in crisis. And I mean, that also fits the depiction of women in the novel, which is in itself very fascinating and I think sometimes fascinating despite Bram Stoker's best intentions. There was a lot of anxiety about masculinity at the time. People were really worried that men weren't proper men anymore. And corresponding to that, there was a fear that women weren't proper women anymore, that women were trying to take over and become something that they were not supposed to be. The new woman was this you know, specter, really, that people were quite frightened of, or some people were quite in favor of the new woman. But Bram Stoker definitely was not. So let's come to the depiction of women. As you said, fascinating sometimes despite Bram Stoker's best intentions. I would say his intentions with regards to the female characters are fairly clear. He wanted to show that women should stay in their place, should not try to get things that are not theirs, and that they should basically just be good old-fashioned damsels. Isn't that right? <laughs> Yes and no. I think for a large part, you're right. There are two main female characters, if we don't count um, Lucy's mother and the horrible vampire brides. There is Mina, who's the good woman, and there's Lucy, who's the bad woman. Oh, yes, and she's and so bad. No, uh, we should maybe say she's a nasty woman. A nasty woman, yeah. definitely. And there's some bad ombres in <laughs> London about... Well, but actually also some good hombres who all proposed to her. That, that is actually a surprisingly funny uh, idea that uh, three men proposed to Lucy um, in the span of an afternoon and um, they all sort of stick around for the whole of the novel. So, so Dr. Seward, Quincy, the Texan, and her eventual fiancé, 
Arthur all propose to her, and she is quite amused by that, and she's very coquettish, you could say, and she says, oh, it is such a shame that I had to refuse them, and she even gives Quincy a kiss, even though she just refused him. So that basically marks her for death immediately, isn't it? Like, uh, she, she, she gave a man who she had just rejected a kiss, so she has to die because she is a Jezebel. Exactly. She even talks about, how, oh, why can't I marry all three of them? And in the Victorian model of the angel in the house that is something that is horrible. And at that point, she actually mentions the new woman as well. She will say, ah, probably the new woman will just uh, do away with all those restrictions on marriage and ask the men herself if she will get married anyway. And that is just, oh, Bram, it's really on the nose. Your, your misogyny is showing. Please stop it. And Lucy, as you said, she gets punished. She's turned into a vampire. A female vampire is mainly marked by their obvious sexuality, yes. more of which later and in the end she is killed and that killing is probably the most misogynistic thing you could imagine because she's killed by her erstwhile fiance with a stake through the heart and that scene is basically described like a rape he's basically raping her in order to put her back into her place and, and then it is explicitly mentioned he drives the mercy bringing stake into her it's Again, really not a subtle thing. And when that finally has happened, she looks angelic again. Not the femme fatale who had red lips. Now she looks at peace, but of course she's also dead. So, And you see, that, that, that scene is a great example for why I think Dracula really has a lot of potential for adaptations. Because it is described, and then she looked angelic again. Then we cut off the head and filled the mouth with garlic. And I, true, I, I true. I can just imagine a film could go in and really make the most of that one sentence and really show how gruesome these men are and how bloody, literally, the business is and really make you feel queasy about that. Whereas the author uh, didn't. Again, I think Bram Stoker sometimes did know what kinds of things he was actually writing about. And I think that's also true for the other, the good woman character, Mina. Because Mina is, on the one hand, this very homebound woman. She's waiting patiently for Jonathan to come home. She helps the man and basically says, I will sacrifice everything for you. The men constantly mention how wonderful she is, how great she is. They're basically just as much in love with her as they had love with Lucy. The only difference is Mina is an entirely unsexualized character. She's yeah. the angel, the, the woman to look up to. But at the same time, Mina is surprisingly very much like the new woman that Bram Stoker seems to hate so much. She is very resourceful. She works on her own. She helps the men by doing basically male work. I think no, Mina no. is mm. not as unambiguously good or unambiguously conservative as you might think. Though I think that is uh, based on a false dichotomy that people thought the new woman was all bad or all good because a lot of people advocating the new woman, including many women, um, said that the new woman should be chaste and should be pure. And the idea of the new woman was not necessarily related to sexual liberation. Even a lot of people who were against, for example, women's suffrage were very much in favor of a woman working to support her husband, help their husband running the household. So I think, yes, Mina has a couple of aspects of the new woman as well, but she's still very much the good woman. Maybe we shouldn't so much that, 
talk about that dichotomy because the new and the old woman, but the good and the bad woman in Bram Stoker's that view. Is certainly true. Yes. That is certainly true. An interesting point about women in the novel, though, is who is the central character? Not who has the most lines, not who has the most scenes devoted to them, but who is the one character who ties the whole story together, the one character who interacts with everybody in the story? It's Lucy. It's Lucy, right. Lucy is the only one who interacts with everyone. So it's a novel centered around a woman, but in a very misogynistic way. It's centered around a woman, and it's all about the destruction of this woman, at least the first half of it. Then the second half is about avenging her. And it, the second half is all about Mina, because Mina is almost the next victim of the vampire, and she's also the one at the center. So the men do things, but they're also doing things just for her. And let's be honest, the three suitors, for example... They are not great characters either. I mean, Quincy is Texan and Seward is a doctor, but they are very interchangeable. Yes, um, especially that, Quincy, for example. We, we never hear anything from his point of view. He doesn't write a diary. And as you said, he's Texan. At one point, he sees a bat and his first instinct is, now nah, I guess I'll shoot it. <laughs> so uh, that's what he's like. Um, Dr. Van Helsing, probably the only other memorable character. But he's horrible. He speaks horrible English. If Bram Stoker thought that German-speaking or Dutch-speaking people who spent a lot of time at university in Britain talk like that, I am offended at that. <laughs> he, he basically speaks like Yoda. <laughs> a, a bit, but he speaks in a very flowery way as well. Even though he says things like, let's cover her head and stuff it with garlic. Well, he is um, Dutch, the Dutch and the tulips, you know. <laughs> Another great thing about the casting, you mentioned Keanu Reeves as, as Jonathan Harker. In the uh, Coppola version of Bram Stoker's Dracula, the three suitors basically all look the same, which yeah. also brings home that notion that, well, they're just men. They're, there's nothing special about them. They're basically the same. A brief word in defense of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. It's often ridiculed, and it is a ridiculous and over-the-top film, but this is a ridiculous and over-the-top novel. And it does a lot of things really right. For example, in the end, it gives Mina agency. And, for example, it, it changes the ending of the novel, which I find to be the weakest part of the novel, and instead it changes it to this star-crossed lover's destiny that Mina is the reborn bride of Dracula and she chooses him in the end so this slight ambiguity that you've already mentioned about Mina that maybe she's not as pure as she seems that is really played up and therefore the whole idea of her purity is questioned as well and uh, in the end she makes an active choice and has agency so I, I, th I think uh, the, 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 the film is, is uh, overdue for reassessment it still has green fog. Um, yeah. That is inexcusable. It has green fog. But you're right. It does many of the things the novel does as well and brings them to the forefront while focusing on other things that are hidden behind it. And with Mina and the men that surround her, there's actually the moment where I think my pet theory becomes clearest, where you think, okay, maybe Bram Stoker is kind of aware that there's another story behind what he's telling, another story behind the victory primness and that is when they talk about how Dracula can be beaten how he's just a child how they've just saved Lucy and they now they're in the offensive and they can do whatever they want to and that happens is Dracula invades 
their home base and forces Mina to drink his blood in a very weird but also fascinating scene where he's basically the mother giving milk slash blood to the baby Mina. And I think that is a very nice contrast that you have these very boring dialogues about what is going to happen and Van Helsing explaining everything in detail and the man being brave and valiant and Mina being the angel and then something like that happens. And I think that is on the one hand, of course, just to show how threatening Dracula really is, but it also shows that there is something very, very subversive about this whole idea, which goes through the entire novel. Yes, definitely. That scene that you mentioned where Dracula forces Mina to drink his blood, it is disturbing. That is one of the strongest scenes of the novel as well. It's described uh, by an onlooker as looking like a kitten being pressed down uh, into a sort of milk to be forced to drink which almost <laughs> is hilarious in its harmlessness but Mina is definitely a lot more traumatized by it and I think in her description of being overcome by this by the vampire in fog form she uh, says she just lay back and endured so there's a very clear sexual component to this as well and let's let's talk about sex baby <laughs> Let, let's talk about sex in the novel because it comes up a lot we've talked about the role Of women, <laughs> come. Okay, I'm going to cut that. That's too stupid. No, leave that in. Leave that in. Because <laughs> this is basically what the novel is. It's not as stupid, maybe, but this novel is all about sex and the fear of sex. The, the German literature critic Dennis Scheck uh, says, uh, what else is a vampire's bite uh, than a passionate kiss with a consequent uh, exchange of bodily fluids? That's really uh, what it comes down to. And we have talked about another vampire novel on this podcast before, Twilight which also is all about sex, but rather about not having sex. So it only stands to reason that this one, where the vampire does actually bite, it is about actually having sex. Yes, and it is not just about sex in general. It's about the varieties of sex, the often very dirty varieties of sex, where, for example, Jonathan Harker is basically getting a blowjob from one of the female vampires, which is also, again, shown in the Coppola film version, where Lucy is kind of implied to be potentially open for group sex with all of the suitors. And there is even a bit more to that because all of the suitors give blood to her. And Dr. Seward yes. even mentions that in a way, this is a kind of marriage they all have with her now and they shouldn't tell Arthur about it because he wouldn't understand. It's basically a, a sanguine gangbang. It is interesting and it really shatters our perception of the Victorians as all stuffy and bound up. Of course they had sex and of course sex was a thing. And even though maybe the popular perception was, oh, this is dirty, you shouldn't do it. I bet Bram Stoker knew what he was doing when he put all those sexy scenes into his novel. And he knew that people would say, oh, have you read the new Stoker novel? Oh, it's really interesting. Oh, that's this. Oh, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's dreadful, of course, but you should read it. This is sex and violence. The man was, after all, an entertainer. He knew sex and crime sells. I mean, Stoker is certainly not alone. The whole end of the 19th century saw a rise of gothic potboilers, basically. Some of them more literary, some of them less literary. But Dracula was in good company. 
And Stoker even describes that, of course, you are disgusted by it, but to a certain degree, you're also thrilled by it. So you cannot look away entirely and maybe you are sexually aroused by whatever's going on there. And I think it is the strange mixture of anxiety and eroticism that makes or that permeates everything about Dracula. Another anxiety that a lot of people had at the time in Britain was, of course, the perceived and real decline of their empire. And that is something else that really comes up in Dracula. And I think this is really the dominant way that Dracula is read nowadays. In 1990, Stephen Arata published an essay called The Occidental Tourist, all about Dracula as a novel about colonial anxiety, about the anxiety of uh, reverse colonization. So Dracula comes from the east to the west and exploits the west as before the west has exploited the east and I was always very unsure about this and I always thought yeah that's a bit far-fetched I couldn't really make use of this because I thought well eastern Europe wasn't really a British colony so if, if he was an Indian vampire or a Caribbean vampire I could see it but then I started reading this and on literally page one Jonathan Harker says the impression I had was that we were leaving the west and entering the east And that's in Hungary. So um, he goes on and on and on with these horrible orientalist, dismissive, very Victorian British colonialist descriptions of the Wild East and people being, you know, a bit Turkish, a bit Oriental. And I, I just have to say, yeah, now that I reread it and that my, my mind is a bit more trained to see it, yeah, it is definitely in there, this colonial uh, anxiety and this idea of reverse colonialism. I mean, there is even some historical context for that, because at the end of the 19th century, there were actually quite a lot of Eastern European immigrants, especially Russian immigrants, that fled from the um, pogroms in Tsarist Russia. So many Jewish immigrants, for example, actually came to Britain around that time. So Eastern Europe was to a certain degree on the mind of British people. Can you imagine that, that? A lot of a lot of Eastern European people, yeah. a lot of immigrants coming to Britain and, and being and met British with being afraid about that and yeah. being kind of negative and seeing them as monsters. And uh, I'm, um, I'm sure we're much more elaborate now. Yeah. People wouldn't think like that anymore. Yeah. People wouldn't go on about immigrants' teeth nowadays anymore. <laughs> It's also the context of the Jack the Ripper killings, of course, which struck fear into people's hearts that you weren't safe in London in this bastion of civilization. And there a lot of people said, ah, oh, this must be a Jewish immigrant. This must be an Eastern European who's killing all of those people. Because yeah. we know how they are. Yes, And they're violent. They're brutish. I think that is certainly there. But another great thing about Dracula is that you can read many things into it. Many of these discourses that were all concerned with anxiety in one way or another are there. And Dracula can stand for so many things. He can stand for sex, the fear of sex, the fear of homosexuality, because one author has read Dracula as being the threat to masculinity because of homosexuality. We, uh, we, uh, we talked about that before we started the recording, that some people interpret Dracula um, as inspired by Oscar Wilde, who was, after all, tried just two years before the novel was published. And Bram Stoker's wife used to be romantically involved with Oscar Wilde. So there's a certain connection there as well. There is also the fear that is typical for the Gothic, that the past is maybe not entirely gone. 
And in Victorian times, that meant that the growing skepticism regarding the old traditional values or the old traditional narratives of religion, of courage, of Britain's superiority, that they were beginning to erode. And to a certain degree, Dracula tries to reestablish them. I mean, Van Helsing basically says religion is the weapon against all these horrible things that Dracula brings. So go back to the old values. They can help you. But it's not wholeheartedly and the anxiety is still there that maybe it doesn't work and maybe the Eastern European part nobleman part pleb will come and take something away from you. Let us come to our final judgments. We agree that this book is horribly sexist, very colonialist, racist, but should you read it? Is it a book that is still worth your time? I could go on about what things you can read into Dracula. And I think that is really the value of the book. It is not a good book. It is effective. But I think what makes Dracula so readable is that it is a window into the head of a Victorian and specifically the dark sides that this encapsulates so neatly everything that was going wrong or everything that people feared was going wrong at a certain point in time. And that is true for the Victorian era. And that could be just as true nowadays. So you could, without that much effort, translate Dracula into a 21st century London or New York or Berlin. Exchange a few details, but you'd still have the same anxiety, the same skepticism and even hatred towards what is alien, what is strange and what you see as threatening. So Dracula is absolutely fascinating and you should definitely read it. I kind of agree. As I said, it is definitely effective. And I agree that you can read a lot of things into it that are not just interesting for the late 19th century, but also for the early 21st. But I would also say that it can be kind of hard to read, especially because of all the horrible things in it. So I would recommend you read it, but maybe not Dracula unabridged. But you know what? Go ahead and find an abridged version. Maybe if you find that really cool illustrated version with the watercolor paint paintings that I had as a child, go ahead and read that. Or watch one of the films. There are so many of them. There's Nosferatu, there's Bram Stoker's Dracula by Coppola. Definitely seek out Dracula, but see which form of it is best for you. So a wholehearted endorsement of Victorian sexism and racism from Christian and a kind of tepid one from me. <laughs> and um, you were the one who was even more enthusiastic about James Bond, so let's see. Let's maybe uh, ameliorate that in our recommendations. What should people read as well as, or maybe instead of Dracula? I have two recommendations. One recommendation is not so much subversive, it plays it more straight, and it's not really about vampires, but it is about demonic possession. But it is basically the second part of the novel, which to me is the most effective part, where they're caring for Lucy as she's slowly wasting away under Dracula's influence. But I instead would recommend a film, namely The Exorcist, which is all about a young child, a young girl, who is possessed by a demon and corrupted by the demon. It is also about sexuality, it is also about religion. But but it is a bit more disgusting, a bit more schlocky, and it embraces its nature as sensationist entertainment a bit more wholeheartedly, I feel, than Dracula, and is not quite as moralistic about it. And also, it is just a really great film to watch around Halloween. 
The other recommendation is something that I've actually just started to read because I thought, okay, so this was a politically quite questionable vampire novel. Surely people have written better ones. And I came across a list, and on that list I chose Octavia Butler's Fledgling, which is a quite subversive vampire novel. Uh, it is about a black woman who is turned into a vampire, but who, by what I gather, then actually uses that uh, to her advantage and uses all that strength she gains from it. I've only just started reading it, but the beginning is really quite excellent, very readable, and I'm very excited to see where it takes me. So two recommendations, The Exorcist and Fledgling. I also have two recommendations, and mirroring Jonas uncannily, it's also a film and a book I haven't read yet. <laughs> Very good. The film is what I consider to be the best vampire film I have ever seen. And that is Near Dark by Catherine Bigelow. A kind of part Western, part horror vampire film from the 80s. It is very 80s and there's some things about it that seem kind of, uh, well, very camp, but it is still the film that manages to portray the fascination of vampires in a way that no other film actually has done. Not even Interview with the Vampire, which is all very polished and very classy. Near Dark shows that vampires are monsters and they're horrible monsters, but that there's still something about them that fascinates us and faced with the choice would we want to be a vampire or not the film says it's better not to be a vampire but it still acknowledges that there is something wonderful about the idea somehow in our dark hearts we would like to be a vampire so near dark my film recommendation it's interesting we have now recommended mark kermode's the film critic mark kermode's favorite film the exorcist and the film that he went to watch uh, when he went on his first date with his wife so uh, this is the mark kermode tribute episode of outside of a dog and the book i haven't read yet is a book that i've often seen mentioned as one of the best but not best known vampire novels out there and that is The Delicate Dependency by Michael Talbot which is also a Victorian vampire novel at least it takes place in Victorian London but apparently it is much more subtle and much more interesting in portraying vampirism so I have tried to get hold of a copy for quite a while now and I think I just have to do what you usually do when you want to read a book and buy the damn thing. So I'm kind of looking forward to reading that The Delicate Dependency by Michael Talbot. But what do you think? Do you agree with Bram Stoker that women should just know their place? If you do, don't write to us. If you have any other comments, write to us at outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. We have a website, outsideofadogcast.com. You can follow us on iTunes, where you can also rate us. And we will be super good the next time as well, when we read... Jonas, what will we read next time? Well, this was our Halloween episode, where we read... A tale of terror. But, of course, the terror is far from over. The terror, in fact, is only going to end in a bit over a week when uh, the Americans finally have their election. And so we're going to read a book to go with it because a lot of people might wonder how can any intelligent person ever consider voting for someone like Trump? Well, they're convinced by the arguments of a certain writer. So for our next episode, we're reading Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. You gotta be kidding me. You know how many pages that has? <laughs> Were you serious about that or? I, I, both. <laughs> Happy Halloween, I guess. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Shit. Thank you very much for listening. 
For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. What? <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually, I wanted to read that for a long time, but actually, I never wanted to read that because it's fucking Atlas Shrugged. <laughs>